You may be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Nahum, chapters 2 and 3. Now, that's going to be 782 in your pew Bible, I believe. I got to commend everyone here that when you showed up and somebody else was in your pew, you didn't break out in a fight because we got 830 service people, 11 o'clock service people here, and the peace of the body is still intact. That's, that's a big praise here. Nahum chapters 2 and 3, I'm, I'm going to read both chapters in their entirety. Remember that um, these two chapters, actually, they read like a breaking news report. They're fast-paced, uh, action-filled, and it seems like this is happening right before Nahum's eyes, but Nahum is actually predicting a battle that would take place 50 years from when he wrote it. Remember, Jonah had come to this great city of Nineveh as a reluctant prophet, and he had come a hundred years before Nahum had come, and God had used the message that Jonah brought to bring revival. And repentance was the foundation of the change that took place in Nineveh throughout Assyria, And God would even use the nation of Assyria to bring judgment on His own people, the northern tribes of Israel, taking them into captivity. And the southern tribes were nervous. They were afraid because they saw what was going going on with their brothers in the north. But they were comforted by Nahum's words when they heard the message of God's judgment. They heard that as Nahum was declaring this judgment against Assyria's capital city, Nineveh, justice. Justice would finally be done, and judgment would be poured out. It would be swift. It would be terrible. Follow along as I read Nahum chapter 2 and 3. The scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of this mighty men is red. The soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run dry. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where's the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his cave with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. 
Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly of charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will expose, make nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile and the water around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they all fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heavens, and the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of dust. Settling on the fences in a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your noble slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Let's pray together. God of heaven and earth, we come to this passage of Scripture that is amazingly terrible. We see your judgment poured out and your wrath consumes all before it. Lord, we are left wondering about your justice. We're left concerned about your character, but Lord, give us humble, teachable hearts to understand who you truly are, what you say about the world and the wickedness in it, what that means for your people here gathered, the warning it is to us, the comfort it can be to us. Lord, would you this day teach us to grow in our fear of you, awe and respect and love for your grace and mercy. Do this in your people, we pray for your glory in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. How in the world does a book written 
almost 3,000 years ago to a people, a nation who is so wicked and terrible apply to us here in the United States of America. If you have been watching the news over the last two or three weeks, you've seen and heard about the Southern Baptist sexual abuse cases in the Houston area, which took place over 20 years, some 220 abusers with 700 victims. The article and interviews will sicken you if you've seen them. We've heard of sex trafficking sting in Florida. Important influential leaders and businessmen were frequenting spas that held captive women to service the men that would visit. Nearly 50 people were arrested. 200 warrants have been issued. The state of New York and their Senate passed a late-term abortion bill on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. The video of the cheering and shouting crowd in the Senate as they passed that late-term abortion bill and lit the spire on One World Trade Center pink to celebrate is, is sickening. Five days ago, Senator Ben Sasse, born, uh, Ben Sasse's Born Alive bill failed to pass the U.S. Senate. They couldn't get enough votes to, pr- to protect the lives of children born alive after attempted abortion. This vote comes as one of the most tragic and important events, Al Mohler said, in recent American political history. It's simultaneously the most tragic and telling. This latest failure to protect human life represents the latest chapter in America's lamentable, lamentable and horrific culture of death, a culture divin, driven by the pro-abortion movement. What do we as a nation need to learn from the book of Nahum concerning the oracle to Nineveh? We need to learn that injustice will bring God's certain judgment. What is it that brought the judgment on Assyria that we read about that was so swift, so horrific, so terrible? What brought God to take out His judgment on these people, on this nation? I mean, they had repented under under Jonah's ministry, but things had changed. Things had reverted. Things had gone back. They had turn back to their wicked and idolatrous ways. What were they doing? We can glean from chapters 2 and 3 and dipping back into chapter 1, what were some of the markers? What were some of the things going on in the nation of Assyria, in the city of Nineveh that God had to punish? And we can get an idea of what God hates and what He will judge. Their violence and their warring In chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. They are unleashing their army. Chariots were their means of executing war. They were able to ride swiftly across plains and bring a quick and speedy attack on their enemies. The wars and the violence produced hosts of slain, heaps of corpses. The, the imagery is just stunning. They stumble over all the bodies. God brought judgment for that injustice. 
He brought judgment because of their idolatry and their rejection of Yahweh. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Carved images, worship of gods who are not gods, idolatry rejection of the God that they had once pledged service to. We see that their worship system was guided by a goddess named Ishtar, and they worshipped her. We find uh, relics of her uh, influence in Nineveh. In chapter 3, verse 4, that's probably what this is referring to, is this goddess Ishtar and all of the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. It's the the allure of a false god that they had given themselves over to. God's bringing justice and certain judgment for their arrogance and pride. They were a proud people. They, you read in chapter 2, verse 10, desolation, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish in all the loins, and all faces grow pale. And we read this section about lions, and it seems from what we've learned in archaeology and some ancient writings about their culture is that they saw that their rulers were powerful and often were depicted as lions. And in fact, they were in the habit of going on lion hunts to prove their power and their um, ability to subdue prey. Verse 11, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where the cubs with none to disturb? There's no more lions. They've been eradicated. The leaders have been taken out. He judged them because of their presumption of righteousness and presumption of safety. We're okay. We're safe. In chapter 3, verse 8, are you better than Thebes? another city that underwent judgment that would be in their knowledge. They would know what happened to that city. If you think you're better than Thebes, well, consider what happened to them. They sat by the Nile. They were surrounded by the Nile, and the water kind of acted as a wall around them. They were as safe as safe could be, but what happened to them? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and without limit, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity even to the point where her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. If you think that you're safe, you're not. Their presumption of righteousness and safety was going to be judged. Their leaders and their shepherds were worthless. God judged them for their leaders and shepherds. Verse 17 of chapter 3, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts. They set on the fences in the day of cold, and then when the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows who they, where they are. Your, your leaders won't lead. They won't care for you. They're only there when it's good, and when it gets bad, they take off. They're shepherds. They're asleep. O king of Assyria, your noble slumber, your your, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no one easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Good shepherds take care of wounded sheep. Uh, Good shepherds go after those who are scattered and, and help them. But their leaders 
had given up. Their shepherds were worthless. God was going to bring judgment on them for these numerous injustices that they were embarking on, the violence and warring, the idolatry and rejection of Yahweh, their arrogance and pride, their presumption of righteousness and safety, and their leaders and shepherds who were worthless. Is there any application for the book of Nahum to us in the way that our nation has rejected God? Janie and I had the opportunity this summer on our 25th anniversary trip to go visit um, Great Britain and Ireland, and we went to a museum in London, the British Museum, and in that museum we snapped tons of pictures of these reliefs that were taken out of Assyrian temples and palaces, and you could see carved in these stones, and I went back and and scrolled through these pictures, just what Nahum reports. Nahum is history. It's real. This isn't just mythology and stories made up. It, it, It was carved into their walls, these lion hunts where the kings would be in their chariots and the, the, um, uh, the prey would be speared. There were other reliefs of wars that took place and the bodies falling off the walls and being trampled by the chariots. It was brutal. And these, these inscriptions and carvings were meant to just display, we are powerful. We can take anybody. We have everything. And the riches that they had, there were reliefs of, of foreign kings being brought in in captivity and bringing their offerings, bringing their gold and their silver in order to pay tribute to the great and mighty kings of Assyria. Uh, their palace was extravagant, and it was full of all the bounty from the peoples that they had subjugated, most recently the northern tribes of Israel. And so in the time of Sennacherib, the temple had been built up, but it seems from what we read about the constitution of this temple and the palace uh, that there were some weak spots in it. Uh, The Greek historian Diodorus Seculus and confirmed with some archaeological digs by Austin Henry, they're really fascinating to see how Nahum just comports with what these historians were noting. Uh, The walls were made of these um, clay that they had formed into bricks, and early on in years past, there had been problems with flooding of the Euphrates River so that it caused big, large portions of their wall to just disintegrate and, and, and crumble. And what we read in Nahum about the the, the fortress cumbering, crumbling and the, the walls being open and the people being overwhelmed, it played out in history just as it is said in Nahum. We see that the way in which God executes His judgment is seen and viewed by the nations around. And this brings fear and trembling. Now, When we see judgment like this, it affects the people that witness it in different ways. In the eyes of God's people, they saw this judgment as evidence actually of God's grace. I believe that's so because when God entered into covenant with Abraham in Genesis 
chapter 12, we read that the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred to your, uh, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. But notice this. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant reinforces for all of God's people that the blessings that God brings will overflow to those who bless His people. But to those who dishonor His people, He promises a curse. Is God going to keep His promise to bless and not His promise to curse? Later we read in the Ten Commandments that we just recited uh, some of the explanation of the second commandment that we don't recite every month. We read, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You see, you can only test the faithfulness of the covenant maker by whether he keeps all the promises in the covenant. He promises that he's going to bless. And if you see the injustice and the iniquity rise of those nations who dishonor God's people and destroy his people, and God doesn't show up in vengeance and jealousy, then you have to wonder, is he truly the God of grace? Is he truly the covenant keeping God that he says he is? And so God's people in Nahum's day, and I think we as God's people today, can take comfort that God's grace is, is confirmed. God's grace we can have confidence in because He comes to the rescue of His people. He does bring judgment. And this week, um, Paul Tripp, in an uh, article, wrote a, a prayer that was in, a, in poetry form talking about how God will not let things last forever. He will he will put an end to sin. And I just want you to just, just hear how this, this can bring us hope that God will not suffer evil. He'll put an end to transgressions of His boundaries, to human thoughts of autonomy, to delusions of self-sufficiency, to acts of violence and deeds of greed. He will put it to an end to the burn of lust, to injustice and inhumanity, to the silent writing on his own law, to using others for personal pleasure, to robbing you of divine glory, he will put that to an end. To disobedience to parents, to gossip and slander, to the worship of comfort, to self-aggrandizing and pride, to self-oriented envy, to subtle daily idolatries, he will put that to an end. He will put an end to desire-driven lawlessness, to attempts at self-sovereignty, to denial of what's true, to denial of you and the elevation of self, to mockery of what is good, to the love of what is foolish. Grace will not allow these things to go on forever. He concludes by saying, what is now will not go on forever. This world is marching toward an end. We can embrace the hope of justice. Final judgment is coming. Grace requires evil to die forever.
Those far from you will perish. Those unfaithful to you will come to an end. But I've been unfaithful to you, Lord. I've chosen to be far from you. I've broken each of your laws, but I'm not afraid of what you will put to an end. Grace has drawn me near to you. Grace has paid for my unfaithfulness. Grace has made me clean in your eyes. Grace puts my stripes on Jesus so I would not face them when you put what is now to an end. We must take confidence in God's judgment. It truly is an evidence of His grace to His people. This judgment is coming. And the judgment that we read in the national level 3,000 years ago to a nation that persecuted God's people should be a warning to all nations, should be warning to all peoples. There, there's the national level of concern that we should have, but there's, there's an individual level of concern because this judgment is not just temporal here and now. There is a judgment that is future and that all these earthly and temporal judgments are only pointing to that great eternal judgment, that great white throne judgment. In Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. I mean, this is, this is the God of the universe has come to judge and nothing can stand in his presence. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Picture it. These books of everything that you've done in your life laid out before the throne of heaven. There is no tampering with the books. There's no explaining away the stories. The facts will stand and the judgment will be rendered. But remember the other book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead... And, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Scripture's clear, this final judgment is coming. You're either going to face this judgment standing in your own works, your own hope that maybe your good will outweigh your bad. Somehow God will just look over those things. Or you can stand dressed in the righteousness of Christ, the robes that He provides us to cover over our sin and our shame, the righteousness of Christ that is ours through faith in His sacrifice the sacrifice that He went to on the cross on our behalf. All the wrath of God was poured out on Him for our sins. And we can rest in that work. We can trust Him. We could give praise to Him for His marvelous mercy and grace. And then, as you think of judgment, now and in the future, you can see it in light of God's grace, in light of God's mercy, in light of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, all of it paid. And you can go confidently to that judgment. If you're not confident today, you need to do business with God. You need to talk to Him and pour out to Him your injustices and your sins and ask 
for the forgiveness that he freely gives in his son, Jesus. Injustice is going to bring certain judgment, whether it's here in this life or it's in the future. Nations and rulers are brought down for their injustices. So we as followers of Christ ought to personally and corporately promote justice and righteousness in some of the most foundational areas that Nineveh failed in. God's judgment is actually an evidence of His grace. Confidence and confirmation of His promises to save His people are wrapped up and grounded in His judgment of the wicked. God's final judgment is coming. Are you ready to meet your Maker? Are people that you know and love ready to meet their Maker? Have you warned them of that upcoming judgment and told them about the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus? Is your name written in that book of life? Nahum, it's really a masterpiece of God's jealous love for His own, which fuels His just judgment and wrath that He pours out on His enemies. The anger, wrath, and vengeance of God are are nearly completely lost, I think, in our age today. People don't understand Him in the way that He's described Himself. Nahum, I think, has helped us appreciate the wonder of God's mercy and grace to His people since we only deserve His wrath and curse. Nahum asked in chapter 1 concerning God Almighty, who can stand before His indignation? The answer is no one. No one can stand before His wrath and indignation save one, save the only begotten Son of Christ, Son of God, the only innocent one who suffered as a guilty one so that we who are guilty could be ransomed from our sins. This Savior, His name is Jesus, and we can cry out to Him. Let's pray together. Father, it's heavy stuff at the end of this day to consider Your justice and Your judgment, Your anger and wrath poured out on Your enemies. And Lord, it's uh, heavy stuff for us to, to consider. But Lord, we want to be more than shallow thinkers, religious people, spiritual people who simply live on the surface. We want to deeply understand your character, and we want to be very honest about our own sin and the sin of our people. Like Isaiah, we cry out, we are unclean, and we live among a people of unclean lips. Lord, would you touch us? Would you transform us? Would you make your marvelous grace a beacon to us and that transformed lives of people here and now would demonstrate your power over sin, your power to save? We thank you for this grace that you've extended to us and we praise and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response and preparation for the Lord's table is hymn number 644. Let's stand together and sing, May the Mind of Christ My Savior, verses 1 through 3.